one. And we are recording with Dr. Peter Bragan on episode 1037, the last episode of 2022 on Tuesday, December 20th, 2022 at 5.04 p.m. Eastern time. And you said you were watching uh, the mass formation episode I did. And that is episode one of this year. This is the mm-hmm. last episode. And in both episodes, I'm wearing the sweater my mom bought me for Christmas. Shout out, mom. But uh, just to kind of jump on the topic we were talking about, about not being terribly observant, I would say we are very alike in that and that I have a I have a laser focus on one thing and one thing only when I put my mind to it. And the rest of the world is oblivious. And I will give an example by saying I went to 12 years of private school, first grade through 12th grade. Had to wear a tie for the last uh, six of them. I never learned how to tie it. I just had my dad tie it once and I used it the same time every day. Four years after (laughs) high school when I was interviewing at the uh, University of Southern California Keck School of Medicine. I remember God never been to LA before. The 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 cab driver who I don't sp- think spoke a lick of English dropped me off and I said, "Hey, by the way, can you tie my tie?" And he looked at me and I just gave him twenty dollars and I said, "Will you please tie my tie?" So <laughs> I had made it past every hurdle to get an interview, but there I am standing on the sidewalk and he's this little short guy is looking at me. He's tying my tie and he patted me. I was like, "Thanks, man." So I too, I can focus on the MCAT, but not understand how to tie a tie. So with that word vomit, Dr. Bregan, please introduce yourself. <laughs> well, I didn't expect to introduce myself. <laughs> um, in fact, that's the first time I've been asked to introduce myself in my oh. memory. Oh, uh, People usually say, well, we can't cover the whole resume. Uh, and uh, what, what do they say? They say he's been known as the conscience of psychiatry for his work doing reform work in psychiatry. And for how long, Dr. Bregan? Well, since I was a freshman at Harvard, since we're going back in time, and I joined a volunteer program, ended up leading this state mental hospital volunteer program. And we did wonderful and amazing radical things. I talked a professor into uh, letting a bunch of us um uh, it didn't include me. I was setting it up for other people to, I didn't have the time to do a seminar and each person to get a, uh, a patient from the hospital. And while they saw the patient every week to be studying human relations. And I had previously gotten the superintendent to give about the uh, same number, maybe 12, 15 of us, each a patient that we could see. And these were just the volunteer leaders. We had hundreds going through the hospital And there was a lot of hullabaloo about it. You know, who did we think we are? And we were going to, we were accused of going to ruin the patients. My first politics, ruin the patients by the Boston Psychoanalytic Association, who never went into the hospital. Those psychoanalysts from Harvard never went into the hospital. And we got almost everybody out of the hospital. And that was a big deal. And it made me realize very early on that the fundamentals of healing were were clearly about love. And I can't tell you where I got the idea from, actually. Uh, That certainly wasn't my growing up experience. So maybe the absence of the experience made me understand that uh, if it for the grace of God, uh, I could have ended it up. I could have ended up. And I didn't. And um, I didn't want to see these people lobotomized and electroshocked and drugged and put in solitary and beaten. We saw all, after I began leading the program, I saw all this going on. I had keys to the hospital. And so I went into psychiatry to uh, be a reformer. But by the time I finished my training, a year of it at Harvard, uh, back at Harvard, and um, by the time I did that and then went to the National Institutes of Mental Health, which was a real plum to get after your training. I was there for two years. Um, I saw that psychiatry now was like the state mental hospital everywhere. All you got was drugs. Yeah. That, that, that the drug companies had completely taken over and there was actually no place for a reformer inside psychiatry. <clears throat> so I went into private practice doing psychotherapy never starting a patient on drugs, eventually uh, writing many books. I have over 20 books, about three or four with Ginger, my wife, and 
70 scientific articles, all of them going against the basic grain of psychiatry. So it was amazing to get them all published. And um, I just began to understand that life was not about the things you do to your brain and your body. That it's about your spirit. And um, I've been treating patients for since then, I guess, up until now, since 1954 till now, um, because we really were working with the patients in the hospital. Some of us were. And I um, went into private practice in, in this, I'm uh, 68, and about 1972, um, I read an article in a psychiatric newspaper that lobotomy was coming back, that they had a big meeting in uh, Denmark, and um, they all were writing papers about it. And I thought to myself, this cannot happen again. We cannot, I, somebody's got to say no, because nobody had said no during the first um, time. Um, lobotomy went out of fashion because the antipsychotic drugs did a better job of shutting everybody up and making them apathetic and helpless. And it felt more like being a real doctor to be giving the medicines rather than ordering surgery for them. And um, I ended up spending three, four years or more working with uh, many women's groups because most patients, about two thirds were women. I worked with the Black Caucus of the Congress because they were doing experiments of four, five, six-year-old black children in a segregated institution, putting multiple electrodes in their heads, the most advanced stuff, you know, really advanced, putting electrodes in their heads, stimulating areas, seeing what happened to the kid when you stimulated them, and then picking an area and burning hole in it. Yeah. And these kids would walk around like with braids coming out of the back of their heads um, around the wards. He would come to this institution and take them back to the University of Mississippi in Jackson and operate on them. That was the only time I ever had a psychiatrist intervene after I told him what was going on. I called down to the University of Mississippi. I used to speak to the chair of psychiatry. I was a psychiatrist at the Washington School of Psychiatry. And um, I told him that O.J. Andy, I said, you know, O.J. Andy, the neurosurgeon is uh, putting electrodes in the brains of little children and burning holes, stimulating them, burning holes. He said, oh, God, no. He said, Andy's right down the hallway. I, I never knew this. And he actually set up a committee of scientific supervision. to, And that stopped O.J. Andy from any more surgery. That was one of the deepest, for myself personally, accomplishments. Um then later on, I've been taking on shock treatment. I've not been able to stop it. But just in 2020, just as COVID was coming in, finally, because of a report I did in a legal case, a judge decided that um, the jury was entitled to decide with, on the basis of conflicting testimony whether uh, ECT caused brain damage. He said, it's a scientific dispute. You can't just say you, it doesn't happen. And as soon as they did that, the, the uh, shock company who we were suing, the product suit against the shock company, they immediately gave in, settled, and sent notice to the FDA that they were going to be putting new information to the doctors, which they did do, uh, that um, you had to be concerned about brain damage and very long-term memory loss from ECT. So that's at least something. I don't think it's slowed it down yet. Maybe it will. And we've done just a lot of things. Ginger and I'll finish with this. Ginger and I did a very big campaign for several years again to stop the uh, massive coordinated uh, funding drive by a number of agencies of the U.S. government all going together to Congress to go and do eugenical studies in the inner city. They were going mm -hmm. to do biochemical studies, genetic studies, starting with uh, children in the womb in the inner cities to, quote, you know, see what made them so violent. I mean, Jeez. this is racism. It's pure racism, opportunism. There's no connection between the uh, uh, violence anywhere 
in groups and genetics. It's all about family life and sociology and yeah. economics and racism. So uh, we stopped the program. We shut down a big conference they were going to have. And um, the head of the entire program, who was the most powerful psychiatrist, I think, in the world at the time, Frederick Goodwin, was the highest ranking psychiatrist in the U.S. government. And uh, he got fired. I think that a few people were so generally didn't like this man and what he did. And one of the key people who who was part of the firing was an African-American. And I didn't know that. Oh, God, I've never told this. I didn't know that until I sat down uh, next to an African-American gentleman uh, on a um, train from... Uh, Washington, D.C. to uh, New York. And um, we got to talking and he's, he's and he, I, I don't know if he said, I kind of know you're Peter Bregan or not. I didn't know him. And he told me that that uh, the work I did gave them the opportunity um, at the top of the bureaucracy of the government to make sure that uh, Frederick Goodwin left and they reevaluated a lot of their research. So that really did have a big effect because we could have had eugenical psychiatry mm -hmm. in 1994 when we stopped this. We wrote a book about it, The War Against Children of Color. And I'll end with my new book, our new book. Me and Ginger have written a book called COVID-19 and the Global Predators. You can see how my background, including a lot of lawsuits, being an expert against drug companies, would have prepared us to do the, the first deep dive into what was going on behind the scenes. And because um, <clears throat> we'd been taking on federal agencies and in large numbers in that particular research, and I've been taking on drug companies even before I met Ginger. Um, and... Uh, the book is COVID-19 and the Global Predators. It was, uh, uh, the um, subtitle is uh, We Are the Prey. People love that. We Are the Prey. You can get it in the United States a little cheaper than on Amazon by going to our dedicated website for it, We Are the Prey. Or go to my our basic website, bregan.com. And, um, but it's an e-book and it's a an audio book on Amazon, and the audiobook's very cheap. We decided to make something cheap, $2.99, so you can get the book on uh, Amazon that way. And uh, the book has three introductions by by the, probably the three doctors I admire the most. <laughs> um, so that was a, a deep satisfaction. Peter McCullough, you've probably had him on your show. You did. I know you did, because I he, saw him come on to the show. He was on, he, he was on this morning. He was on this morning. <laughs> yeah. Well, Peter wrote the introduction to it. One of the introductions. Every place he goes, Peter not only mentions his book, but he mentions ours. He mentions, he, I've heard the name uh, COVID-19 Global Predators, We Are the Prey, a hundred times through Dr. McCullough. That's funny. He's such a blessing. He's and of course, um, his book um, is- The uh, Courage to Face COVID-19. Yeah, The Courage to Face COVID-19 is, a, is a, a very good book. Um, but he, he endorsed our book way before he wrote a book and he was so cute about it. He, it was, I think the first time he ever had a chance to sign a book. So he signed it as the introducer, writing an introduction. <laughs> he would sign it and, uh, at book, uh, uh, sales things at, at conferences that we didn't go to. <laughs> and, um, the second, uh, another author was Zev Zelenko. I don't know if you ever had Zev on your show. I never got to meet him. I know he, I know his past. I, I wanted to have him on so badly. Yeah. Well, he's probably the man who's had the deepest spiritual impact on me. We were like brothers. I mean, and we just really loved each other. And he's gone now. It was not a uh, no hanky panky. He was a very sick man. Mm -hmm. And he um he had very bad tumors and yeah. uh he lost a lung and they wouldn't stop working. And so he got COVID. He survived the COVID. And finally, the cancer was just too much for him. He, he so inspired me. He was such a, a wonderful man. And we, we had him on eight times, I think, on our radio and TV shows. Um, so he was the, and then Lee Valit, who was uh, 
uh, an MD, uh, Elizabeth Lee, lead, and she uh, does an organization called truthforhealth.org, which is a great organization. And then Bobby Kennedy had a book come out about a month after ours. And despite that, his having a book come out, he endorsed ours as the deepest dive into the criminal conspiracies behind COVID. And that, that the, my understanding of that came from writing multiple legal documents about the drug companies, the shock companies, sometimes including stuff about NIH, NIMH, often the FDA, um, not too often CTC. Um, but we, uh, we're very pleased with that book. It's uh, 680 pages or something like that. It's got over a thousand references. And it's uh, a lot of people call it the Bible of for understanding the whole big picture. Um, if you look at um, uh, McCullough's issue, McCullough's book, he gets more into the heroism of doctors. Gosh, I'm just boasting away here. He's got a chapter about me. In it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, mentions our book a lot in it. And um, and it's really, really good on, on some of the details and some, some stuff he takes from our book. It's a very, very good book. Very personal touch by uh, by a co his co-author. is just an excellent writer. John Leake. John Leake, yeah, thank you. And then you, if you look at um, the other really good book, uh, which is... Uh, the Real Anthony Fauci by Bobby Kennedy Jr. Um, it's an enormous focus on um, Fauci, even though I have a whole chapter on Fauci in the book and many, many of the pages have Fauci's name on it. He just had a way of going at that criminal kind of conspiracy that Fauci conducted. First of all, he goes all the way back to um, the AIDS period, which mm -hmm. we just mentioned in passing that Fauci was just as bad with AIDS as he was with uh, COVID-19. And so that's a really good book, but ours is still unique in the depth of looking at the globalism. And yeah. now I'm looking at it as really empires. I just wrote an, a column on America Out Loud where Ginger and I have a radio show together which is really pretty cute actually <laughs> and fun and interesting and she's very deep she's like a she's often been ahead of me on these really out of the box issues yeah um she's amazing and um anyway uh i think i'm drawing to an end here tell me <laughs> about yourself dr bregan um i'm very glad to be here Glad to be doing the work we're doing. I've never met such wonderful people in my life as in the media, this conservative, libertarian, freedom-oriented media, or in this movement. So mm -hmm. many spiritual people and uh, many very deeply believing Christians and some Jews, myself and uh, and Zelenko and uh, Harvey, um, Oh, goodness. You know Harvey from Yale. Harvey Reich. Thank you, Harvey Reich. Um, you know, he, he's also Jewish, but it's really predominantly a Christian group. And it's uh, just really good, good, God-loving people, love your neighbor people. So that's, I'll stop there. <laughs> Is that so, the longest self-introduction you've ever had? I think you might have taken the cake. But the reason why I asked that is because if you read off someone's resume, you're reading off their resume, which people normally put together with a, an air of professionalism. When you ask someone, tell me about yourself, they will naturally select out the things that they think are most important. So you get the business approach versus the who are you yeah. really? I can sit here and I can read off your MDs and your degrees and yeah. you graduate in residency. And, yeah. and you don't. You, instead, well, you know, you, I'm 86 years old now. So I am really? actually, yes, I'm 86. My wife is 71, 70, 71. And we are both feeling so blessed to do this. No, I know. I know. It's a blessing. I God bless. Didn't, I didn't do it myself. Um, but uh, I've been allowing myself to savor, to savor the life that I've had uh, for 40 years with Ginger and then for so many years of doing reform work before Ginger. Yeah. 
There's just, just letting myself be, be proud as I never have when I was younger. It's um, the allowance of self-love is definitely a difficult thing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, and you do have to approach it and, and open it up. And as you said it earlier with psychiatry, the basis being love. Um, I wanted to do anesthesiology because I was so fascinated just by the brain. I used to read a, a neuropsychopharmacology book on my off days because I was so fascinated by mm -hmm. how chemicals created our consciousness. And mm -hmm. it, it took me a long time to realize there was, I remember asking my physiology professor, I was like, where does, where does consciousness arise? And I remember he just, <laughs> he closed the book and he said, that's in philosophy, not in biology. And, um, right. but psychiatry has always been something very close to my heart. Not soon after I graduated college, I had just gotten into medical school in Miami. Uh, my oldest sibling took his life and that threw me for a loop. Oh, Lord, 27, yes. I was 23. And uh, I went down a deep, dark black hole for several years um, and uh, tried every medication, self-medicated and doctor prescribed. And ultimately, you know, other than the unwavering love of my parents, it was a, 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 a fierce uh, Jewish woman psychiatrist who uh, uh, I'll respect her privacy, but I would argue saved my life through several years. And ultimately was like you said, looking past a medication, a bottle of this, uh, this of that, and starting to approach on a much deeper loving level mm. and to be okay with who you are. And what you're saying now is allowing yourself to savor it, allowing yourself to be proud of who you are, that mm -hmm. humility is important, but it's also important to pat yourself on the back sometimes and be like, Hey dude, that was cool. That was cool what you did. But the point I'm saying for saying all that is be it the love component of of psychiatry you can dive down into the molecules and the adp and the glutamates and the whatever or be it uh global predators we are the prey zooming out to the global empires of it what it really is is the largest recurring themes right you want to understand the universe you got to understand gravity electrostatic strong nuclear weak nuclear the rest falls in line and i think that's the importance of these large large-scale issues is what are the core components and with this, you got to look past COVID. You got to look past Pfizer. It is the rise of empires. It is power. It is dominion over others. It is the opposite of what you quoted. Uh, democracy, libertarian, love your neighbor people. The people that we are up against do not value those. They hate those. And they actually do. They do. They, <clears throat> they, they, they do not love the, the human experience that we love. But the good thing is, is it's the best training ground possible. You don't get strong going to the gym and lifting the same weights you've been lifting. When you go to the gym and you can lift the 10-pound dumbbell 100 times, you don't say, there it is, I'm done. Now you move on to the 15-pound. And when it hurts, you don't say, this hurts. It means the gym's working. No pain, no gain. Anything other than that's not real. No pain, no gain. So the connections I've made, the individuals I've talked to, like yourself, like Dr. McCullough, would never in a million years have happened. And you really, you put your ideas to test. You and I can sit here and pat each other on the back and say, love is the core of psychiatry. And that sounds great. We can put it on a Hallmark card. Versus when you see it put into action, all the doctors I have on here who have no reason to be on here. I'm not Joe Rogan. I don't have that audience. I will put the link of the books in the description and you might get a, a, a sale or two. But at the core of it, it's you talk to them off air as well. It's love. It's love for their fellow man. They truly believe that there's evil going mm -hmm. on and that it is their job to fight it. And yes. to me, that is, if you can boil it down and find that that thread that connects it, mm -hmm. come to peace with it, and then you can move fearlessly forward. doesn't mean you won't be scared. doesn't mean that death isn't coming for all of us. But you can move with a, as the, as the special forces guys I interview often say, you're already dead. <laughs> go on as if you are and it allows for a fearlessness um but that's that's i think your introduction is beautiful just for that is myself and my audience got to see the things that you think are important so thank you well thank you tommy very very much appreciate it yes sir do you have any thoughts about where else you'd like to go with this today this conversation between us mm-hmm
Well, as we always talk about this stuff, I always try to bring it down to this is uh, sometimes I'll have these conversations and they're, they're beautiful and we're smiling, but then it's like actionable. What can people actually do? Um, and so for that, I want to say is what would you tell people who you and I are blessed in that we get to meet all these people, talk to all these people, write these books, read these books. There are a lot of people who will only be able to look at this one interview. It's a sliver of a moment of their week. And it sounds great and it makes them warm and fuzzy, but then they have to go back to their lives. What would be a piece of advice for not only my audience, but also for myself to keep going, to keep fighting? You've seen it in your time, be it the lobotomies or electroshock, that good can win. It's very hard when you're looking at the FDA and the CDC and the Department of State and Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, and you feel like an ant at the bottom of a mountain and you're like, you're kind of putting them up and you're like, all right, let's do this. But then if you can actually find examples of them working, <clears throat> that can inspire other people to keep going forward. And uh, I get countless emails and texts and calls from people who you know, they, they say, thank you for sharing the story about your brother and how I have gotten through it. And I never thought I would get mm -hmm. through it. So mm -hmm. from your past experiences of the things you have successfully taken on, could you maybe apply that to where we are today and that these are not infallible monoliths? They look scary, but they can be brought down and not just in theory, you have brought them down in your lifetime. So could you maybe extrapolate from there on why, although this fight isn't over, why we have hope that it can be over one day. Well, my take is is um, a little different from yours, so this sure. will this will be interesting. Um, I don't assume that mankind triumphs in some fashion. Me um, <clears throat> okay, me neither. Me neither. I'm. I'm hopeful, but I'm, I'm yes. pragmatic. <laughs> I mean, we could fry ourselves tomorrow or tonight. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Um, so I work on the idea. Well, before, before I was deeply immersed in actually experiencing God in my life, mm -hmm. I, I was very, I was like, I was a progressive. So I kind of understand somewhat, of, not the way progressives are now, but I was kind of on the left. Sure. <clears throat> And then what I thought I was working for was for history. <laughs> and um, I never assumed I'd accomplish any of the things I did. Um, I thought maybe I'd, I wouldn't even get my books published because it was quite a while. It took a long time to, to get somebody daring enough in, in the in serious publishing to, uh, to handle a book that said psychiatry is you know, uh, doing more harm than good and shouldn't exist in its current form, period. Something like materialistic religion. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> it took, I mean, they really kept me out for a while on those issues. Um, and so I used to think that I my unpublished manuscripts would uh, carry through in, into history. <laughs> I've got a lot of books published since then. <laughs> but I think, first of all, you should live the way you believe is right. It isn't a matter of winning because that's not in our hands. And um, one of the most important things anyone ever said to me was watching TV with my wife and we're watching Charlton Heston movie about uh, the um, escape from Egypt and uh, the liberation of the Jews by Moses, um, the Exodus it's called. And um, <clears throat> at some point the narrator is saying, and the Jews languished for 500 years under the whip in Egypt. And Ginger turns to me and said, says, God's time is not our time, is it? No, no, no. No, no, and, no. <laughs> and, and that was like, oh, yeah, that really solidified what I thought my whole life, which is I have to do what I believe in regardless of the outcome or even the possibility that future people will totally distort what I was saying. Um, I have to do and live the way I want to, and I believe that God wants me to. And as I discovered that I had qualities I never imagined in terms of the way I could affect things, um, I just looked for 
well, where do I, where do, where, what I know and what I can do fit into this? And um, <clears throat> that's why we took on COVID-19. It was a huge departure for me. Ginger had been interested in epidemic diseases since she was, I think, six years old or something. So Jeez. she brought in a lot, of, a lot of interest and a lot of knowledge. It's so funny. Um, I mean, it looks like not only is their side planned, but God's planning our side too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Giving us what we need. And that's why we decided finally that even though I was, you know, so pleased to be known as the conscience of psychiatry and clearly had led the reform movement in the world. Um, I mean, I was literally the first psychiatrist to testify in court against the psychosurgeons and the first to win a case and the first to win a, uh, be a, an expert in a winning case against shock treatment. There was a whole bunch of things that, that, that I'd say, well, why, why, why nobody else? And well, you don't know why, but you know that you can do this. And so I really believe that we each should try to get a sense of who we are in terms of what are our gifts, what are we grateful for about ourselves, and bring it to the world. And I don't know when, uh, you know, it comes time to be judged, if we ever are, by God, whether all of this stuff I've done will... Uh, even stand up against somebody who's been a better father than I have during all that turmoil, maybe. I don't think I can judge. I just know what gifts I've been given and to try to use them as best I can, including in raising my children while doing, or, you know, always being with, with my kids, even though divorces were in the way. Sure. Um, but so to figure it out, it, it may be that exactly what you're doing is going to matter and figure it out. It can be in any area where we love. If it's not loving, it's probably not worth much. If you don't get joy out of being a carpenter, you're probably not contributing much. It's probably not what you should be doing. Mm. Maybe you want to be an electrician. Maybe you want to be an artist. Uh, Maybe you want to go to medical school. Um, so look to what the messages are that you of God in terms of who you are, what you're gifted at, what you love to do, what matters to you, what what would what could possibly be your biggest contribution in your lifetime, and would you like to do it? I mean, that's kind of the direction that I go in. Now, granted, it's a different direction because I think uh, very small numbers of people think this way. Um, but you'll and 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 understandably so. I've in all of my years of of helping people, not a single one of my clients or patients, I like to call them clients, even though I'm a physician, none of my clients have become reformers. First of all, I'm not I'm trying not to guide them to go sure. where I think people should go. But also they see me day to day and they say, well, how's your day going? You look tired, Peter. And I'll share a few minutes uh, if they would like of what I've been doing. And none of them come away thinking, oh, I want to do that when I'm all helped, ready to go into the world. Uh, they're much more excited about um, learning to love better and have more love with their families and and that's almost always where we end up is, is uh, you know, what do you love to do? And it seems like battering their heads and taking huge risks against evil people is not, not what they want to do, uh, despite all the Superman comics and stuff, or maybe because of, I don't know. So that that's what I advise is, and to, to, to try to find a loving, meaningful way of life where you believe that you're actually fulfilling some promise in you. Mm -hmm. And if it's, if you believe in God, you know, God's promise in you. Um, I'll give you a little uh, example of, of a decision we made, which I've never heard of another author making. We, was, we could tell this book was going to be really, really a large book. We didn't know whether it would sell. We thought we'd be selling them out of our garage. It's now sold 120,000 copies. We, we self-published it in order to control it. Yeah. It was our only major self-published book. I mean, we self-published, I think, two other books, two other books. 
because they just weren't something a publisher would necessarily want from me. But um, we, uh, so I imagined meeting God, which, you know, I'm very healthy, but, you know, I may not be terribly far away at 86, and explaining to him why I held, withheld my knowledge about what was happening from the world for a year. Um, I didn't withhold in the sense I was, you know, talking in TV and radio shows about it. And I realized, yeah, that, that was not the right thing to do. So what we began to do, and we did it for many, many months, is if you bought an advanced copy of the book, we would send you a recent copy of the manuscript with all its flaws and mm -hmm. all the, whatever it's, uh, there was about it. And we sent out uh, tens of thousands, I, I think, of, um, of manuscripts before the book got published because people were, were buying it. And um, I think that really ended up, I think, also not, I think it ended up probably getting us more, more, hard, more real books published. Maybe not, maybe it was less, but we got the information out in some form. So this is what I mean by really being concrete um, about it. And um, we have generally found that if you, you do measure what you're doing and think about it this way, that things turn out okay. And, and you hear, you hear people say that a lot, you know, um, you know, uh, I gave up worrying about money and I did what I thought I was supposed to do for God or something like that. Mm -hmm. It seems so self-centered in a way, rather than God-centered that I'm embarrassed about it. Sure. I, I, I can't understand why I and Ginger would be so protected um, despite even one very serious attempt against us. Um, why? Why me? I mean, six million Jews died. How can anybody, especially a Jew, say, well, if you if you conduct your life in such a way, You'll be we sure. have experienced God's protection. Okay. It makes no rational sense. It it's but it's a personal experience. And I think that's the deepest part of religion is your own my I think your own personal experience of God in your life. This is getting deep. Well, <clears throat> actually, I would say it's no, no, no. I, I'm, I'm, I, 100 percent am, am with you. It's, um, you know, I, I, I think of my own experiences. You know, graduating college, getting in medical school, feeling on top of the world. Next thing I know, I'm living at home with my parents, wildly overweight, addicted to drugs, and hating myself, and blaming everyone in the world for my brother's death. Yeah, I'd started this podcast uh, on a laptop above my parents' garage at age 30, working at a liquor store where all my other friends were married, doctors with kids. I was a real mm -hmm. textbook loser. Um, when I started to first cover COVID with doctors and I realized I was getting banned from YouTube, I just had a feeling that I had to keep talking about it. And uh, I knew that it was going to directly affect me. And I, and my podcast wasn't some side project, some little fun thing. It was the means in which I was hoping to make money to move out of my parents' house by age 30 because my parents, rightfully mm -hmm. so, were ready for me to be gone. And I got banned nonetheless from YouTube, from iTunes, and that greatly inhibited all growth and all money. Mm -hmm. But I then started to make connections with physicians who used my me getting banned as a sort of litmus test or street cred. They were like, oh, Oh, so, so you're real. And again, that sounds wishy-washy. And oh, if you just follow God, <laughs> it will all work out. No, from your own experiences, it has. It has worked out for me above everything else. And I'm someone who grew up Catholic. And for 10 years, I was, I think what you were saying, I was progressive. I was liberal. I was, I was materialistic. There is no God. And through this podcast, actually specifically through meeting Charlie Duke, the youngest man to walk on the moon, he's about, I think he's about 86 as well. And uh, he talked about how after he came back from the moon, he was miserable and he found God and he's been happy ever since. And he told me to just said like a scientist, like a variable, like like a psychiatrist saying, take one and call me in the morning. He just told me very matter of factly, he said, ask God to come into your heart. And if your life hasn't gotten better, then it's not for you. And I'm I lived in Georgia for 15 years. I'm used to proselytizing. I'm used to, you know, the tent preacher. You will find the Lord or you will. It was very. He just said it very matter of factly, like take an aspirin and call me in the morning. And I've told mm -hmm. the story a million times. My life has been irreversibly better 
since I owe my heart to God. Now, what does that mean other than just a nice little soundbite? It allows you to come to peace with what you said earlier. There isn't necessarily an outcome where we win. World War II is great because we look back and the good guys won. Hey, man, that might not happen. They have the military, the media, and they're injecting everyone with these jets. They might win. They are yeah. te- they are technocrats. They are Marxists. They are they are godless transhumanists. They want us dead. They might win. When you come to peace with that and understand that, as your wife said, God's time is not our time, but you start to understand your role. And I think it's actually more important than the one analogy I always use is this is when I was a freshman and I uh, pledged up a fraternity and they haze you and they make you feel terrible and doing stupid stuff and you're never sleeping well. But the point is to make you and your pledge brothers become closer and closer to you stop. They say, don't throw them under the bus. You stop blaming them and you get to the point where fiercely, religiously, you start to defend your, your friends. And no matter what, even if another guy forgot something, you blame it on yourself because that was my fault. I was supposed to do that, even if it wasn't. And the idea is you are consolidating. You are you are metal under intense pressures, fusing into one. And then they start to lie to you towards the end of the semester. What I now know is a lie. You guys aren't going to pass. You guys aren't going to get initiated. You're going to be the first pledge class in 50 years that gets held over the next semester. You stop caring. And then they eventually start to tell you that you're all going to get cut. You're going to get cut from the class. And then when you all stop caring, you go, we don't care. Like, I'll do anything for them. You've passed the test. You'll do anything for your what? My brothers. You're in. There's the moment you divide by zero. It's over. They initiate you and they're laughing. And you're like, what the hell? And then you do it to the pledge class next year. But the importance of that is this. Is once you accept that you're not going to win the goal, we might not be initiated. I don't even care, dude. Screw these people. Y'all are my best friends. You won. You 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 answered mm-hmm. the test. That was the test. And that's why I think it's so important to understand that, like I said earlier about the gym, you don't go to the gym and go, oh, God, it's so hard to lift. That's the purpose is for it to hurt and to work through it. I don't think even if humanity does win, I don't think I'll see it in my lifetime. We might not win. The bad guys might win. They might nuke the planet. They might sterilize the planet. Once you come close to God and understand that this might not be the whole ball game, the ball game is anybody can work hard when you know there's an opportunity to win. What about when you know there's 0% chance of you winning? What do you do then? What do you do in the face of evil? Do you still stand your ground and do the right thing? Well, that's the real character of who you are is there's Mm -hmm. no chance of winning. You always see that the football team where they're down by 50 points with 10 seconds left, but the freshman is still out there trying to prove himself. He doesn't care. He's going to try to win no matter what. And mm-hmm. that's how I, so when you said we're going deep, I actually, no, that's that I don't, not only do I agree with you, that's actually what I constantly talk about on this podcast. And it's what I personally mm-hmm. believe. I don't, I don't necessarily think we're going to win, but I'll be damned if I give up. And that's where I, that's, I don't think you can get there without mm-hmm. being close to God. I do think it's a spiritual fight taking place in a physical realm. And uh, God's time is not our time. <laughs> Maybe it does work. I don't know. But I don't think it matters. I think you do your part. Even when the monsoon, the tidal wave, 100 feet high is coming at you, yeah, just stand, just stare at it. Put your fists up. You're probably not going to win. But that's what defines you, is what you do when even there's no chance of winning. What do you do when no one's watching? Do you take the money when the security cameras are off and you find a wallet on the ground? Or do you pick it up and look at the ID and go, oh, this is Bob's. He'll give it to Bob. Not because somebody's watching, but because it's the right thing to do. So that's my Mm -hmm. little stump speech. Well, I think it's beautiful. Thank you, sir. I do. I really think it's beautiful. Um, Some of the corollaries to this, uh, if you think about love, I... Have uh, By the way, the nearest thing I've written about all of these issues, it's pretty near, is a book called The Heart of Being Helpful. Yeah. It's on Amazon, The Heart of Being Helpful. It's a little book, and it's beautifully written compared to my other books. I took my time, purposely made it small, and tried to talk about what does it mean to help other people? What's that all about? And 
And why is it so wonderful? Um, but uh, everything you're saying, you know, resonates. And if you have this viewpoint, one of the things that I ended up doing was giving up anger. Mm. Because if you're not personally at stake in what you do, it really begins to take away your rage and resentment of not accomplishing it, not getting published, not getting recognized, getting threatened, getting physically hurt, all the different things that tend to happen to people who really put these principles first. Um, but you won't be you won't be uh, trapped into anger. You won't be tied to the enemy by hating them. Mm-hmm. Anger is a good signal, lets you know you've been hurt. It isn't a useful emotion beyond that, in my experience. It's just, it's useful. If I'm angry, I probably got hurt, get to the hurt, we'll just let it go. And again, God came in for me on this when I was uh, in, in a more personal situation, but it was, it was also related to the reform work because I was in the middle of doing reform work. And I found myself being so angry and frustrated with people. And um, at that particular time, actually, um, I was facing rejection from the New York publishers. I, I recovered and got back for, you know, uh, into get, finding some publishers. But it was just a very down time, and I was very, very angry. And I realized that the anger was eating me up spiritually. And I said, you know, I said, listen, God, I can't handle this. And I had been uh, at that point uh, dating a woman who went to. Um, AA meetings. So I'd gone to a couple of AA meetings. And I said, you know, uh, and in AA, you're supposed to say, you know, God, I can't handle my alcoholism. I give it over to you. Take care of I, I really didn't understand it until the moment I, I, I said to God, I'm just by myself on a walk, I said, uh, listen, if there are people that really need somebody to be angry at them, could you handle it yourself or give it over to somebody else? I can't do it. I cannot do it. I got to let go of my anger. And that was the beginning of what has been a process. Um, And it may account for why at this age, I think it's a a big part of why at this age, I'm still comfortable with with myself and the world and its condition because I gave it up to God, the anger, resentment and, and things like that. I was about to say, that's probably why you are able to savor who you are. Because once you stop hating others, it's not a long time until you stop hating yourself. And then there's kind of like a ball hitting the ground and going back up. There's another beautiful moment. Stop being angry at others. <laughs> stop being angry at yourself. And then it bounces and you start to love yourself. And spoiler alert, what's the ending? You start to love others. And that doesn't mean don't be aware of evil. Right. It allows you to open your heart. And I do the same thing when I pray. I say like, hey, I'll just, I'll just, I'll, I'll talk to God like I'm talking to like a friend at a bar. I should be like, hey, man, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm trying my hardest. If I'm going in the right direction, just let me keep going in the right direction. If it's not working, I'm trying my hardest. I'll, you know, just kind of throw up a peace sign. And uh, it's worked out so far is to just acknowledge where you're going. And if you're meant to do what you're meant to do, hey, man, I might drop dead tomorrow. That might be the purpose. The purpose of this entire podcast might have been to reach this episode with you. I don't know. I have no idea. (laughs) And just come to peace with that. And I really, I don't think, I don't think there is a physical path to peace. I do think that, and it's a bit of a deus ex machina. It's a blank check. It's an explanation that doesn't Mm -hmm. require an explanation. But I really think, I really do think it lies in the spiritual. If you try to make sense of what's going on with these weird bipedal organisms with digits and eyes and we're walking around on this rock floating around a star and there's water and butterflies and trees and llamas and it doesn't really make sense and you don't understand why there's evil. You don't really know how you got here. No one knows how we got here. The farthest we've been is to the moon. We haven't even gone to the center of the earth. It's all, it's pretty weird. If you try to find that, if you try to find the answer in there, you're going to go insane. And I'm I'm fully open to the idea that giving it over to God might just be my own defense mechanism. I'm humble enough to say I don't know, but it's mm-hmm. worked for me. 
and it has made my everyday life better. It has made me less scared. It has mm -hmm. made me hold on to anger less. So like a placebo effect, it's still real. What do I care if the pill sugar? <laughs> what do I care? Um, as long but, as it's consistent with love, with being yes, loving, sir. taking joy in in the experience of others, and in uh, seeing others and seeing the world, it's really it is quite simple. You know, I guess we'll we'll kind of wrap it up with uh, well, one I want to say uh, I had on Doctor Thorpe the other day, and uh, oh, I love him. He's he's the best. I had a wonderful experience with him. And he told me that you were the conscious of psychiatry. And he told me that he renamed you the global consciousness of medicine or the global conscious of medicine. Oh, God. And he wanted me to tell you that. So I, I've been telling you that um, Dr. Thorpe's a wonderful person, but it really is. I mean, I, I think of, we'll wrap it up with this. I think of a, a, a quote my mom had on a, in a frame for me and my little brother's bathroom growing up. I think it was a Winnie the Pooh quote. And, uh, it was, if you tell the truth, you don't need to remember anything. And I think that that can equate to if you love others, you don't need to remember anything. That doesn't mean you're going to pass an organic chemistry test. You'll probably still fail that. You do have to study benzene. But if you just love others the way you would like to be loved, mm -hmm. you don't care about which empire wins. You don't care about the GDP of China. You don't care about transhumanism versus whatever. Just love each other, and it's all going to be okay. And you might think that's a cheesy ending. I don't care. It's worked for me, and I think it's worked for you. And uh, with that, Dr. Bregan, thank you for being the last episode of 2022. Thank you, Tommy. It's been an absolutely lovely time. Thank yes, you. Sir. I would love to have you on for the, uh, the, the, the tiny book you wrote. What was the name of it again? Say it again. The Heart of Being Helpful. The Heart of Being Helpful. I would love to have you on for that. Sure. That would be great. I'll make a note of it. I will set up an episode with you. Thank you so much, sir. That was Thank beautiful. You. I always feel it's like when you leave a sauna or a massage. Every once in a while, I have these episodes where I leave and I and it feels like an angel rubbed my shoulders. I just leave and I'm like, ah, oh God, it's it's all good. That's, now, granted, I'll, that's I'll, very, that's really lovely. Yeah, now granted, I'll wake up tomorrow and just be horrified. I'll be like, oh God, the World Economic Forum and Pfizer and the but you know, for a moment, I'll I'll take the piece. I'll take the shoulder massage. So thank you, Doctor Bregan. Absolutely wonderful experience. Thank you. I will put all of your books, your website, all that good stuff, social media in the description. Guys, go check it out. Don't make me look like an idiot. Go buy a book. And uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and have a Happy New Year. Thank you, sir. God Thank bless.